Join me at Matthew chapter 8, a smaller chunk today than last week, which was uh, the first 17 verses in Matthew 8 and those, that first batch of miracle narratives. Today, just 18 to 22 under the title, Counting the Cost. Quoting J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle, 19th century. It does cost something to be a Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, and Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, end quote. Matthew chapter 8, we've just, as I said, been through the first 17 verses and a succession of three miracle narratives in which faith is highlighted, the faith of the leper, the faith of the centurion guard or centurion leader, This leads Matthew to pause for a moment between batches of miracle narratives to discuss the nature of true discipleship, the cost of following Jesus Christ. And as the crowds increased, as the miracles piled up, there were more and more folks who wanted to come closer to Jesus and to follow Him, but often they had not counted the cost and would not pay the price. Enthusiasm without commitment, verbal commitment without knowledge, and ultimately without staying power, a desire to be associated with Jesus, but not follow too closely, and unwilling to change or obey. Today's text is about all of this, and it's a needed word. One would-be disciple is too quick to promise. Oh, sure, I'll go wherever you go. Another would-be disciple is too slow to obey. You know what, that sounds great and all, but I've got some stuff to take care of back home. Jesus' true disciples, by God's grace, count the cost and obey. And there's one other key thing Matthew sneaks in here by way of his memory or account of what Jesus said on this occasion. In his self-description, Jesus makes a claim to his messianic authority. And so just as Jesus has authority over sickness and nature and demons, so he has authority over the lives of his disciples. It is for him to determine what following him means and involves and costs. He is the Lord after all. He sets the terms. He gives the commands. And it is for us to listen and obey. Therefore, if you are going to follow Jesus, it must be on His terms rather than your own. And so how's that going for you, professing believer? And what is that cost asked of us? 
Let's ask the Lord's blessing before we read the text, and then we'll work through it. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now for strict but joyful faithfulness to your revealed will and word now. We pray, Father, that your spirit would move to convict concerning what is in your word in these verses, would move believers to repentance and obedience and unbelievers to come. And that may seem paradoxical to both camps when we're talking about counting the cost. But Father, we do trust that your Spirit moves and that you save and that you keep and that this is the way, these very words. And so move now, Father, we pray, through your word that it would not return void or unaccomplished. We know that it never does. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Matthew 8, 18 to 22, not, not a very... Um, uh, Unknown, it's very well known, isn't it? 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The holy and inerrant word of God. Three points today. Point one, too quick to promise. This verse is 18 to 20. It's really 19 and 20, but uh, the first three verses. Too quick to promise. This is that first fellow. Matthew begins by saying that when Jesus saw the large crowds that had been attracted by his healings, no doubt, he, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And, and we don't know if it's this point or when he reaches the other side, but perhaps it's on this side before they depart, and his imminent departure prompted certain people to kind of, you know, take their shot, um, try to get into the circle of disciples. They're following. They're disciples of a kind. This man, and, and the second one, another of the disciples, verse 21. So these are disciples of a kind. There's many people who followed around Jesus but weren't ultimately true disciples. Anyways, his, the departure prompts some people to say, well, okay, I better, you know. So here's a scribe, a teacher of the law, and he comes to Jesus. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I, I've decided. I will follow you wherever you go. Enthusiasm. Uh, words of commitment, anyways. And actually, I will follow you wherever you go. That's pretty good. Uh, 
That's precisely what is required of a true disciple of Jesus Christ, of course, follow him wherever he goes. It is what the apostles themselves were doing, but this man had apparently failed to think through what following Jesus might involve. He wants the team jersey, you might say, but he doesn't want to practice. He doesn't want to play hard. He doesn't want to risk. He wants that team jersey. Wouldn't that be nice to show off at school? And Jesus, who did not want anyone to follow him under false pretenses or apprehensions, knowing precisely that this man was out over his skis, if you will, replied to the man, piercingly knowing the man's heart, we must assume from other such texts, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does he mean? Well, Jesus did have places to sleep, of course. He had friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother, who invited Jesus in and provided meals. He was just at uh, Peter's home, and his wife, his mother-in-law. His response to the man was not so much about poverty or, or real homelessness, but rather chosen homelessness because of the nature of his mission and ministry. This is what it means to follow me, and this is what it is like to follow me. Have you been paying attention, sir? Have you counted the cost? And apparently Jesus detected that the scribe sort of envisioned a connection with Jesus that would secure stability, perhaps even privilege. After all, if Jesus is the Messiah, he may well have thought, And if the Messiah is to rule in a powerful and wealthy kingdom, supremely blessed by God, then it would be wise to get in on the game early, become a close follower now, at the bottom, at the floor, in order to get on the inside track when the day of glory dawns. At the very least, Jesus' answer shows that he at least detected in the man that he had not given much thought to what it actually meant to follow Jesus. And it's not too early in the going here to ask, have you? Have you, professing believer, given much thought to what it actually means to follow Jesus? And where would be the proof of that, that you have counted the cost? To stick close to verse 20, the fact that Jesus in his ministry had no place to lay his head does not mean that Christians can never own homes and have comfortable beds and couches and and such. Most Christians do, at least in our part of the world, it seems. But we are reminded here that we may be called to give up homes or incomes or any other possessions in Jesus' service, to go and to do whatever faithfulness to him and His Word and His call upon our lives may require of us, even with just a moment's notice. He is our Lord, or He is not. He calls. He commands. 
and we do this or that. And now. That was the centurion's amazing faith. You say it and it happens. And so it is to be with his subjects. So consider the cost before you follow this Jesus, the real Jesus. That's the point. And Jesus is simply getting at this particular fellow's issue and addressing one aspect of what it means to follow him, to be one of his disciples. The issue is actually much broader, much deeper, much more about all of life and not just homes and possessions. In other parts of the world, even today and during times of persecution, it's easier to understand that those who are in the process of becoming Christians count the cost carefully before taking up Christ's cross. And preachers and evangelists do not try to attract them with false promises of an easy life or better health or with prosperity, as much as I should say the prosperity gospel has infected evangelism, say, in Africa. However, the point stands. No, they, they can see the, the, the potential convert, the person saying, I'll follow you, can see with their own eyes what it costs. And they've heard who's being targeted but Christians in these places. But in prosperous times and in times when Christianity is viewed positively or at least neutrally, which we are jarringly no longer in, mind you, time to wake up Christians. We're, we're not in a time anymore where Christianity in our culture is viewed positively or, or even neutrally. But in those times, times such as all of us did in fact come to Christ over the last decades, if we have, the cost does not seem so high, does it? It didn't seem so high. And people take the name of Christ without undergoing the radical transformation that true conversion implies. They, they answered no call. They didn't give up anything. They didn't change their priorities, let alone their views of their prosperity and possessions. They may have even thought it was a positive gain in terms of health and wealth and respectability. I'm adding Christ and Christianity and the local church to my portfolio. J.C. Ryle, again, 19th century, again, I point that out just because this is seemingly like prophecy about our own day. He once wrote, quote, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army, as it were, speaking of the visible church, with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. End quote. The church is full of such professors. But how can that be reconciled with texts such as ours for this morning and, and these words of Jesus to the scribe? You, you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I imagine, and he's often quoted in, in, in sermons on the cost of discipleship. And so I'll do it here today. He, of course, uh, the churchman, the German churchman of the Nazi era, who eventually was killed for being a Christian and opposing Hitler, called what I just earlier described 
sort of t- t- uh, usual kind of very normal Christian view of coming to Christ. He called that cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, end quote. There's a lot of that. But what Jesus speaks of, who is the one who is to be followed and who can do the saving, is a much more costly grace, isn't it? Bonhoeffer again, quote, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy uh, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is, excuse me, the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him immediately. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ, the Savior. End quote. How many in the church today, in America, and speak broadly so no one feels particularly convicted. No, I, I'm fine if you feel convicted here too. How many in the church today drift along assuming that because they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or raised their hand, though their lives and priorities and beliefs and convictions largely remain unchanged, and they don't repent of their sins, and they don't read their Bibles, and they don't prioritize the people of God and the gathering of the saints above all else. They assume that they are Christians. How many? And saved. They assume they're saved. When actually in many of these cases, they are far from Christ, devoid of God's grace, and in danger of perishing forever. Even inoculated to the gospel, thinking... They're fine. Well, I don't need to hear the call to come. I came in 73. I signed the card. How many? But Jesus, as you can see, never allowed anyone to have such a low view of what it means to follow Him, to know Him. That would be a delusion, and He wouldn't let someone stay in a delusion when they come to Him and to ask Him and say, I'll follow you. Oh, no, 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 no. He sees the heart. We don't know how this man responded to Jesus, but we know that Jesus told him the truth. As he does even now, right this very moment in his word, Jesus challenged prospective followers to soberly count the cost before deciding to join him. And saying that one has joined him without the commensurate life change and actually following him doesn't prove you did follow him. You didn't. You just say so. You see? Count the cost, dear scribe. Well, so he's too quick to promise. The second one, the second 
would-be disciple, and this is our second point, is too slow to obey, too slow to perform. Verses 21 and 22. So the second uh, would-be disciple, a man who said he wanted to follow Jesus, but only after he had first, I, I guess we could say generally, met his family obligations. It could be any number of things. I'm part owner in, in a business. Uh, I've got responsibilities, you know, w- with my siblings. Uh, I'm the firstborn. I'm going to need to take care of things when dad passes. In this case, that's what it was. He, he wanted to bury his father. He, he, it goes like this, verse 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, uh, presumed, I'll follow you too wherever you go. But he goes on, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, no, 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 you, you follow me now and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, many have, have um, read that, experienced that, if you will, and found it to be, shall we say, super insensitive. Uh, as if the, father's, uh, the man's father had just died and Jesus wouldn't even let the man arrange for or attend his dad's funeral. Heartless is the thinking. But that's probably not exactly what was going on here. Commentators have debated about this, whether the man's father is dead or, or not. I, I lean on the side of that he's not dead yet. And that's just all the cultural stuff going on. For one thing, in Israel, the dead were required to be buried on the same day they died. If the man's father had died, he wouldn't even have been in the crowd surrounding Jesus. He would have been at home. However, since he's asking permission to bury his father before following Jesus, what he probably means is that he he wants to remain at home as the firstborn during his father's last years, which perhaps they're in, and follow Jesus only after that phase of life is over. I would like to change my priorities. That sounds good, but I'm living by these priorities, and I'm not thinking of changing those right now for you. When Jesus told him to forget about waiting for his father to die, he was saying that the time to believe on Jesus and become his disciple is right now and fully. There's no other kind. Right now and fully, discipleship, the call of Christ, is always a present, right now, obligation. We must never put it off or say we'll change our priorities in a few years. You might not. You probably won't. You might not even get there. Putting it off actually shows, one, that you don't really know the stakes regarding your sin and you don't truly treasure Jesus as Savior. And it, too, shows that you are assuming that you have more time. But you don't know that. You don't know whether you'll live through this coming night, do you? or whether an opportunity to follow Jesus tomorrow or another day will come, or what your frame of mind will be then. All of this to say, if you put it off, you haven't 
responded to Jesus, and you perhaps won't. You're in danger. You're in danger eternally. And and speaking of in danger eternally, look again at the way Jesus responds. Verse 22, Jesus said to the man, follow me and leave the dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. The dead who are to bury the dead are spiritually dead people. Those who are awake to the issues of this world but who are dead to spiritual truth, they will attend to this world's obligations, Jesus says. You come with me. It's different for those who have been awakened to spiritual matters and who live according to the Lord's priorities and commands. They can't wait to change their priorities, or they're not followers of Jesus. They perceive realities the spiritually dead cannot fathom and will drop everything to follow Jesus. That's how he knew who the real ones were. Come follow me, Peter. Those men went. This man? And though there are those who will jump to conclusions here and blurt out that Jesus is teaching the disrespecting of family, of parents, that is not the case. Rather, as in the other places Jesus speaks this way, he's highlighting that the kingdom's sons and subjects must prioritize the king, the father, the Lord, over any and all other relationships, and that this is quite fitting and right and good. Jesus was not asking the man to be disrespectful to his father and family, but rather to have the right priorities in life. It is better to preach the gospel of the kingdom and give life to the spiritual dead than to wait for your father to die and bury him, the physically dead. And don't presume ahead of time that God will not give provision for you to do both. He might, but you follow me. You first follow Jesus. We must always be prepared to choose Jesus Christ over any other loyalties and relationships and commitments, especially if such loyalties or persons or commitments would demand that we deprioritize or demean or disobey Jesus Christ and what He says our priorities should be. And so it will not do to say to Jesus, in fact, you are in great danger If you say to Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'll set the terms. I have these other things that I must do first. I have these other priorities that I'm going to attend to first. I have these other relationships and loyalties which rise above my commitment to you. And when I get through with those to my satisfaction... Remember, I'm setting the terms of this relationship, Jesus. I'll get back to you. I'll be right behind you then, Jesus. 
you see the problem. How inconsistent that is with what Jesus says in the text, but how normal that is. in the church. That's qualified discipleship. And Jesus rejects it because it's not discipleship. It's not following Jesus. Such a person is not a son and subject of the king. But yes, Christians do love their parents, and they do bury their fathers, but not in such a way that is a denial of their first loyalty to Christ the King. And consider one more thing. Consider uh, in this point, consider the wisdom and depth of what Jesus is teaching us here. By starting with the best and the most good things in life, a home, our family, our mothers, fathers, our children. These are the best things. But look how they can keep someone from Jesus. See the further implication. We must say to ourselves, if I can be kept from Jesus by the normal and proper and good love that I should have for parents and family and prioritizing home, house and home, you might say, then how dangerous must the many other snares of this world be? If the best and closest, most wonderful things can be snares and idols. J.C. Ryle looked to our old friend once more, and be thinking of the parable of the soils here, or the parable of the sower. Quote, It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants, these partway people, so much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And... So after running well and bidding fair for heaven while boys and girls, while young, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses and end with Demas and Lot's wife. End quote. And so is it any wonder that we are so often called to, in God's word, to fix our eyes on Christ, to hold fast to Him, to be bold and clear and regular in our confession, to hold fast to our confession of Jesus Christ, to not forget the basics, 
to build our lives upon it, to recall the works of the Lord, to recall His wonderful salvation, to recall the wonders of the gospel and of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that we're called again and again and again this way? Commitment to Jesus must be without reservation. Such is the importance Jesus himself attaches to his own person and mission. He must be right in front of you. You must be following him, and your eyes are fixed on him. You must be close. This is the unique authority of Jesus to even call for this, to demand it, to command it, and to sense where it isn't, he pushes away. Who but God could make such demands on a human? And so we have one more thing to point out in this text, and that's the third uh, point and a phrase from in verse 20, the Son of Man can. The Son of Man can. This is the first of many times Jesus referred to himself, as you know, as the Son of Man and dozens and dozens of times, and others would refer to him as such a couple, three times. What does it mean, the Son of Man? Well, it, it, this specific Son of Man is, as you know, the individual referred to in Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, Daniel records a vision in which he saw this, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given by the Ancient of Days, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never, shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This individual is like a son of man. He's like, like you and me. But he's also invested with the authority, glory, and sovereign power of Almighty God. This is the Christ. Jesus unveiled this meaning in the end of this gospel, when he says to the high priest who's presiding at Jesus' trial, he, he interprets this this way for us. We're not out on a limb here. Listen to what he says to the high priest. I tell you, he says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's me. obscure the Son of Man, the Son of Man this, the Son of Man that. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his. Obscure, if you were just listening in, not counting the cost, have done your homework. That's the point. But pregnant with meaning for the one who picked up on it. In Matthew alone, Jesus uses Son of Man to affirm his full deity, to teach that he has authority on earth to forgive sin, that he would ransom his people from their sins, that he would die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day, and that he will return one day in judgment. Son of man, son of man, son of man will do these things. This is who I am. Who is this son of man, they would ask. 
But the answer to that question is the very essence of Christian theology. It's the person of Christ and the gospel, his accomplishment for his people. He has all authority, God's authority over all he has created, including you and me. And so he says, follow me, not on your terms, but on mine. The Son of Man can do that. And one day, as we head towards communion in a moment or two, one day every knee, we're told, will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, either willingly from the heart by God's grace, or they will have their knees knocked out from under them. They will bow. Everyone will acknowledge His Lordship. But today, He calls everyone, everywhere, and you to come to Him, to repent of your sins and come to Him, trusting Him alone for all that you need to be rescued from your sins and the consequences of your sins, namely the just wrath of God. Now, we are saved by grace and grace alone by means of the finished work of Christ on the cross, For all who by God's grace repent and believe. Grace alone, our works do not save us. But as we have seen again this morning, in God's Word, that doesn't mean that there is no cost to you for you to consider. The cost that Jesus paid to save His people is very high. And then He calls to those who would follow Him to consider the cost to themselves of following Him. He will be Lord. His priorities must be submitted to. His commands must be obeyed. His people will be sons of the Father and subjects of the King, and they are expected to act accordingly, repenting as they go. And these works, these do not accomplish or even add to our salvation. That's God's work and God's work alone. But rather, this counting the cost and following Him, these are evidence of the grace of God in the Christian's life. The fruit, and they are very personal, and they are costly. In one sense, then, our salvation costs us absolutely nothing. But in another, it costs us not less than everything. Do you know? Do you know? So says Jesus the Christ. Count the cost. Then follow me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we do pray back to you the great truth that you have paid it all for your people. You have sent your Son, and he saves them from their sins with a finished work, all of grace. And yet, here we are called 
to count the cost and to follow him, not with just words, but with our lives. So lead us to repentance. Surely each of us has professing believer has, has something to repent of. We must sin every breath we take in which we do not love the Lord our God with all of our soul and might and strength. And so there is repentance needed. Would you help us to obey? Would you help us to follow more closely? And Father, would you draw for the first time, but that they would count the cost too, as Jesus called to this scribe and to this other disciple. Father, would you do this by your grace? And now as we look to your commanded meal, the family meal, Father, thank you for paying the cost in full that we might be saved and that we might follow Jesus, paying for every ounce of faith, every step of obedience. It's all of your grace purchased on the cross. And so we thank you for so great a salvation and move in our hearts now as we focus on those elements which represent the body and blood of our Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen.